Good morning. It's uh, good to see that we have so many gathered together this morning for this time of worship and of study. Um, you've heard the title of this lesson series that we're beginning today. Uh, I was very, very uh, excited and thankful that uh, Tony messaged me and said, Hey, I hear you've been doing some preaching. Will you want to come speak? And I said, Sure. And normally, I get to come, and it's pretty open, and I get to do what I want. Um, but Tony and I, we, we, we've known each other for a few years, and he was the one that married Caitlin and I. And in doing that, we met with him and his, and his wife for uh, premarital counseling sessions. And they were always, you know, laying stuff on us and asking us to work through this and work through that. So, of course, he says, here's what you got to do. You can only use two chapters out of this book. Here you go. So that's where we're at today. We're going to be studying uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, looking at mainly the first two chapters and specifically the second one indeed. So as we uh, get things going this morning, would you please bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer. Father, we are so, so thankful for this time that we're able to gather and worship and study you. Uh, Lord, as we uh, begin this time of study, we ask that you prepare our hearts and our minds for it, uh, whatever you have for us, Lord, for speaker and listener alike, we ask that you place it into us so we can take it to those around us in the coming weeks and, and share it with those as we go. We ask this, Lord, in your son's precious and holy name, amen. So, we know the title of this lesson series is Five Easy Ways to Wreck Your Life. The first title of the first lesson being Let Pleasure Drive You. Let Pleasure Drive You. Whether we know it or not, all of us are engaged in a quest for something which will meet the needs of our hearts. We are all looking for that secret of finding delight anytime, anywhere, any circumstances. What we are looking for, in other words, is the secret to contentment. And that, too, is what King Solomon was looking for. And in this book of Ecclesiastes, he describes his search. In chapter 1, he lays down his credentials. He tells us why it is he is qualified to begin this search. Um, he was very rich. Uh, he was an astute observer of human life, and he had plenty of time and money. Notice I said money twice. He was, he was very specific in that. He was also uh, fully aware of the difficulties involved, stemming from our fallen nature, being man, and the difficulties of just living life. No thing, no possession, no relationship will endure to continually yield up to the fruit of contentment and delight. And that's what Solomon was looking to find. He was looking to see if he could find that panacea, that cure for it all. In chapter 2, which is where we're going to be focusing today, we're introduced to this record of Solomon's finding in his search and the proof of what we sort of just talked about, what he was saying his qualifications were and how those lived out. Um, we uh, see that um, the first way in which he kind of dives into this is pretty popular, and philosophers throughout the ages have referred to this first bit as hedonism. That's a big word, and it means the pursuit of pleasure. That's hedonism. And that's what Solomon was really diving into for this first bit. Starting in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and going on through verse 3. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what 
does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of our lives. How best to spend your life? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What can I do that will always make me happy? That's what Solomon is looking to answer here. And there's a lot of things that are implied in that section of scripture that we just looked through. And as Solomon dives into this, let's try and imagine for a moment. Just imagine the blast Solomon would have had. That would have been some, some rocking parties because that's what he was doing. He was throwing all of his riches, all of this into trying to find enjoyment. And it, this would have been weeks, months, maybe even years of his life spent in this search. And he goes on to give us some of the details of what he experienced. The first thing is that he said to himself, enjoy yourself. So he went in for mirth, for laughter, and for pleasure. Um, I'm going to let your mind sort of fill in the gaps here, but imagine how the palace must have been rocking every night with music and with laughter. And, you know, they might have had like stand-up comedians and definitely these huge, lavish feasts. And the wine was flowing like water. In fact, just a little side bit of information here, we are clued in a little bit to what a, uh, a daily menu would have consisted of during this time. First Kings chapter 4, verses 22 and 23 gives us some insight here. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. That was the menu for one day. Okay, we don't use cores anymore to measure things. So let me maybe set the perspective in a way that will make a little more sense. So it's estimated that this would have fed between, oh, 10 and 20,000 people. So when you put it in that perspective, that was, those were some massive parties that King Solomon would have been throwing and had all of um, these people here, and that's... That's just some crazy stuff. That's a lot to be feeding for your retinue of the day. Solomon goes ahead and gives us the results of this initial search. Laughter, he said to himself, is madness. Now, I wonder if, if some of you have experienced this um, to some degree. Have you ever spent an afternoon with friends or with family, and it, you were just having a great time, everything was wonderful, the jokes were on point, everyone was laughing and enjoying themselves, but you go to bed that night, and you're just exhausted. You're drained, you're a little let down, and you're just feeling empty. We see that in the stories, in the stories that we share in those days, sometimes they're embellished. We like to put ourselves in the best light. We exaggerate at times, and we do this so that we can you know, put ourselves in a little bit better light. We see that there's nothing of substance at times when we go through moments like this. Ecclesiastes 7.6 I'm going outside of what Tony told me I could use. Sorry. Uh, it says, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Laughter, in this context, it's just a noise. That's it. It leaves us with this sense of unfulfillment in and of itself. When it's just laughter, there's no value intrinsically. That was Solomon's experience. He's not saying that laughing and enjoying time with friends and family is wrong. He's not saying that you shouldn't have those experiences, and the Bible's not condemning it either. It's just saying that laughter is empty, and that in and of itself, it does not fulfill or 
satisfy. Of pleasure, Solomon's comment is, what use is it? What does it contribute to life? Nothing. Nothing is his answer. Pleasure consumes resources. It does not build them up. Most of us, you know, we don't go out every night of the week because our budgets just don't allow for it. Uh, We can't just go out and have these massive spending sprees. Just going out uses up resources that hard work puts together. It turns out, I've just found this out in the past three months, that once you begin a family, once you have kids, your money just starts evaporating. You don't know where it goes. As you're beginning this stage in life, things just speed up, things happen. And simply living life makes it hard to make a living. Pleasure, Solomon concludes, adds nothing. Wine, he says, it's no help either. The world says it should be. The world says it should appear that way. The world says that every social gathering we have today, we should be a little liquored up. We should have something in our system. There is this widespread conviction in the world that you can get strangers to talk by giving them some liquid courage. And Solomon fully believed this for a time and was really investing in it. But we see that there's no significance that comes from this stuff. If you invest too much in it, that becomes its own set of issues that Scripture later addresses. Wine, Solomon says, does not help. He says, I looked into it. I tried all of that, and all I found in it was vanity. I looked at this, and I see that it leaves people with a feeling of futility and of emptiness, and it further isolates them and adds to the loneliness. That's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, I've been in this, I've done this, I've tried it, leave it be because it doesn't benefit you. So he moves on to another form of pleasure, uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Here's another form of pleasure. We see that Solomon is diving into these projects, these parks, and these pools that he's created. Many people today attempt to find this same sort of satisfaction. There is pleasure in making things. There is pleasure in working with your hands. There is pleasure in designing. And some people give their entire lives to this endeavor. Some of us, we overwork. We throw ourselves headlong into the fray of our labors fully investing in our jobs, fully investing in our projects, sort of allows us some reprieve from having to have interactions with those around us or conversations with our friends and our family. And it sort of patches over that need and that desire for relationshiping. If not to find this solace, if not to avoid the stuff of the world, people often throw themselves into work so that they can gain some Um, acknowledgement from it. We do it so it benefits us intrinsically. Uh, We see um, in history that the emperor Nero said that he found Rome made of bricks, but he left it made of marble. But this, this isn't because he was trying to make life better for the people of Rome. He wasn't trying to make the city beautiful. He did it so that history would remember him in this grandiose light in this way that portrayed him as a figure uh, to be admired. Solomon too gave himself to this. His own house 
took uh, 14 years to build. The temple took seven. Uh, He built houses for his wives that he had brought to Jerusalem, spending time and money and interest doing so. And then southwest of Jerusalem, to this place that a lot of people don't really go today, uh, there still exist these little depressions in the earth, which are called Solomon's pools, the pools of Solomon. Uh, And he used those, as we had seen earlier, to sort of use as irrigation, to water these uh, great vineyards and these bunches of trees that he planted in an effort to find satisfaction in his own heart. Solomon uh, next goes on to a summary of things which, for our sakes and purposes, we can refer to as what the world would say is living the good life. Verses 7 and 8, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also had more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. Does that sound kind of modern? Do we recognize this? Solomon had people around him all the time to just give him everything he wanted instantly, instant gratification. We hear that a lot in today's society because we're very, very guilty of wanting that. He says, you know, I have all of these um, livestock, I have all of these farms that are just raking in wealth for me. He's saying here that, you know, bank accounts, those give a sense of security. He says he gathered silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces, and he brought it all to Jerusalem. He had all the money he could ever want. Then he had the musicians brought in. He had the the bards and the the minstrels and the bands and the singers, and he had all of them, and you can just, again, imagine all of these wild parties and epics that would have been told. But finally, finally, Solomon brings in the concubines. Solomon calls them a man's delight. All the joys of untrammeled sexuality were available at all times. Any lust of the flesh that he had at any given moment could be instantly sated. It was always within arm's reach. Does that sound familiar? We have these little devices we always carry around on us, and everything that we could ever want is at our fingertips. And the world, Satan, has used that to his advantage. There's, There's this notion that this playboy mentality that we've seen for the past hundred and however many years is unique to our time. This says that is not the case. We see here that the world has always, if maybe a little more so now, has always constantly been reducing sex, which God made to be a blessing between man and wife. He's reducing that now to this cheap transaction between people so that you can just enjoy yourselves and give in to those sinful desires and have that instant gratification. This isn't new to the world. King Solomon says, I tried all of this. So we've seen that Solomon has been dabbling with the pleasures of this world, but what did he find? He gives us some pretty honest conclusions in verses 9 through 11. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the the reward for all of my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. That's a pretty honest report. 
Solomon says there were some positive things in his eyes. You know, first, he, he gained some notoriety. He became famous. Uh, he was great, surpassing all of the, the rulers that had come before him in Jerusalem. Many people today think that fame is going to satisfy, satisfy that longing within our hearts. Solomon found fame. He says, um, however, that his wisdom remained with him throughout this time. He was aware of what was going on. He was able to assess that as he went along, he didn't lose himself in this wild search for pleasure. He was able to look at himself and evaluate what was going on, and he came to this conclusion that every time he was investing into these things, every time he was pouring into these things, the return on pleasure was lessening. Each time he did this, he got less and less and less from it. My conclusion, Solomon would say, is that it was not worth it. Like a candle, it all burned away, leaving me jaded and empty. Nothing could excite me after that. That's what Solomon would say. He concludes that it was all emptiness, a striving after the wind. He was burnt out. Verses 12 through 23, it's a bit of a, a longer bit, but it goes on to explain a couple ways in which this searcher um, goes about these two possible ways of pursuing pleasure. Um, somebody at this point should have uh, come along and told Solomon, hey man, the reason you ended up like this, the reason you got so burnt out, was because you were going about this the wrong way. You planned all of that for yourselves. You planned all of these little excursions and these parties and these things to invest in. You told yourself, do what you feel like doing. And that's where you messed up. Surely, this is one of the, the first examples that we've gained that, that modern motto of uh, do what feels good. It feels good, do it. You know, that's, this is sort of the first example of that. And Solomon definitely lived it out. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 2 goes on saying, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. Uh, what more can the king's successor do than what is already been done. He says, I've done it all. I've tried everything the world has to offer. What is there for me? What else is there? I have not found contentment. Verse 13, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. Okay, here we're beginning to see that we're about to have a turnaround moment for Solomon. He's starting to acknowledge that maybe there's another way of doing this. He's starting to come around to the idea that he's been doing it wrong. He realizes that if you're going to pursue pleasure, you shouldn't just go at it like a wild man. You're going to get carried up in the moment. You're going to be carried off by the things you're involved in, and it's going to lead you to ruin. He says, if you're going to do this, you might as well be smart about it. I'm the wisest man in the world. There's a better way for me to approach this. goes on in uh, verse 14. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in darkness. In other words, the wise man can foresee that there's going to be some troubles coming, and he can avoid a little bit of them. Whereas the foolish man is just going to take the full brunt of that. A little more modern terms. The wise man sees there's a car coming down the road, and he might have enough sense about him to get out of the way to where he just gets clipped, and he might go down and, and do a little roll. Whereas the foolish man, he's not paying any attention, and he's getting smoked by that car. But either way, Solomon says, neither one can avoid death. He begins to realize that there is more to life than the way he's been living it. Uh, continuing on in verses uh, 14, uh, the rest of 14 through 16. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes both. 
Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Doesn't really make a lot of difference. In the end, Solomon realizes the foolish and the wise approach both come to the same end. Finally, Solomon says, no matter how carefully you pursue life, it will end in darkness and the dust of the earth. The fool and the wise man will both be forgotten. How many of you have known wise men or wise women that lived just off of that, that lived just off of being who they were? They had no other belief. Are they remembered today? Solomon finally comes to have this last realization, this last remarkable reaction in verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me, all of it meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control all over all of the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair all of my toil, toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and they must leave it all to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless, a great misfortune. All right, he just said meaningless a lot of times. I, I won't count them up. I have a, a Shawswick Elementary School education, so that was a hard number for me. Um, but we see here that his depression is beginning to increase. He's saying meaningless. He's using all these very um, negative words, these negative connotations, and he's realizing that what he did was hurting him, that it was detrimental. He's saying, you know, I hated life because what I did hurt me. His experience is one of increasing dislike because there is a diminishing return on his investments into pleasure. He's seeing that he's getting less and less and less from the life he's trying to live. He then becomes frustrated. You know, why do I have to do all this work? Why do I have to do this if the next guy's going to come along, this next punk is going to come in here and he's going to blow it all? Why do I have to keep working so hard? Finally, after he gets so frustrated, he sinks into this moment of anguish. You know, I, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair, says Solomon, because he is helpless to change this law of diminishing returns he's been experiencing. Um, I think that a lot of times we see uh, in society, especially with these huge, you know, popular icons of men and women who had apparently seized the keys to life, these people who had riches and fame, and whom the media constantly held as these objects to be admired, they experience this. They see that they have the whole world, but what else is there? So they begin to enjoy it less and less and less. And sadly, every now and then we see that this frustration and despair um, turns to moments of tragedy, and those individuals take their own lives. These were the words on uh, which Solomon has faithfully recorded to us, and they're true. We see that today in our society, that when you have everything the world has to offer, you really have nothing. He goes on to sort of conclude this bit in verse 22. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving? 
with which they labor under the sun. All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Is there no answer, church? Is there no hope? In these three verses that follow, we um, see this first statement of the true message of this book. It is a, uh, just a matter of time before we all become so frustrated in life, so burnt out and so frustrated with all that is going on um, when we're just living life for the sake of living it. Uh, the man that seeks to fill the God-shaped hole that he has in his heart with everything else that doesn't belong there will ultimately come to this end. However, we're seeing the full turnaround here. It's really beginning. Solomon is understanding what it is now that things should progress in that manner. Uh, verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can find their enjoyment? Hey, there it is, finally. Solomon has come around. He realizes what it is he's been missing. And this is the true message of this book. Enjoyment is a gift of God. There is nothing in possessions, nothing in material goods, in money. There is nothing in a man that can allow himself to bring himself joy. But it is possible to have enjoyment throughout your entire life if you take it from the hand of God, if you accept it freely, that gift he is giving to you. Verse 26 goes uh, in following. Uh, to the person who has pleased him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering up and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He's finally here. He's finally at this turnaround moment, realizing that without God, we live our lives without meaning. The way to enjoy yourselves, the way to have pleasure in life, to really live it up is to abandon yourself and to submit yourself fully to God, to accept his lordship and to follow him for the rest of your days. It is so wonderful to see this thread that, that is permeated throughout scripture and it, it's still in this part here and it continues on for the rest of this book that we have. Um, we see that God wants us to have joy. He gave us life that we might have joy in it. In his letter to Timothy, Paul said, uh, he gives good things of life that are mentioned, oh, excuse me, uh, he gives us richly all things to enjoy. It is God's desire and intent that all good things of life <clears throat> that are mentioned here should contribute to the enjoyment of man. But only, but only if we understand that this enjoyment doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from the stuff. It comes from God. It comes from his hand. It is his added gift. How do we please God? We see uh, in many places in Scripture we're told without faith it's impossible to please God. If it's faith that pleases him, belief that he is there and everything in life comes from his hand. That's part of it. And let's just pause for a moment and consider the ramifications of that. Everything in life comes from God. Everything. Pain, sorrow, bereavement, disappointment, as well as gladness and happiness and joy. All of these things were given to us so that we may have joy in life throughout it all. No matter what stage of life we're in, whether we are just rolling with the punches or if we're standing in the winner's circle, God calls us to joy. God calls us to trust him throughout it all and to put our faith in him through accepting his lordship over us through baptism and following him, adhering to 
his message of joy and love and repentance and following as his word prescribes. That's the message of this book. That is what God wants to see, to see in this testimony of Solomon. Again, I'm going outside of what Tony told me. Romans 8:28, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Church family, isn't it strange that the more we chase life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find in terms of inward satisfaction. But the more that we take life as a gift from God, the more that we respond to him in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more we get from life, the more opportunities God gives us to share his word and his love with those we live life with. Even in the trials and the heartaches and the handicaps that others seek to avoid, we are touched with this moment of beauty and of grace when we live life with God. And we go and we can minister to the hearts of these injured and wounded people who have it all wrong. Their priorities are so, so backwards. As Tony returns, uh, you guys are going to uh, sort of take off with the series with him at the helm. And you're going to continue to dive into these follies that often ensnare us. But more importantly, you're going to see who it is that has already paid, has already given themselves so we can accept this gift of grace. We can accept this gift of an eternity with the one who offers that gift. Today we've established that joy, joy is a gift of God. And it comes to those who daily take up their cross in times of trials and in times of peace, and throughout those times, whatever they may bring, we're going to receive all that we need from the hand of a loving Father. If you don't know our Father, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't come to know him through baptism, we are going to have a time of invitation. Uh, we're about to enter that time. Uh, I know a good portion of the leadership here. I know that you are, you've been blessed with some wise men that can instruct and that can help and that know the scriptures, that know um, how to go through life serving. If you have a need, if you have something on your heart that you need to just submit to God, to lay at the foot of the cross, you're going to have an opportunity to do that uh, as we uh, begin our song of invitation.